Krithika Chandramouli is a software engineer at Meta who is full bottle on full stack and passionate about mentoring. Join us as we speak about Krithika's journey from biomedical to software engineering, paying it forward with mentorship, and going from having a love-hate relationship with running to completing a half marathon. I'm Michelle Ong, and this is Steam Powered. Good evening, Krithika. Thank you so much for joining me on Steam Power today. I'm really looking forward to having this amazing conversation about your journey. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. It's amazing. So you know, you're currently a software engineer at Meta, but you started off in biomedical engineering, which is very awesome. But you know, what attracted you to biomed? You know, um, when I was selecting majors, uh, for my bachelor's degree, I wanted to really do something that no one else was doing and uh, find the most niche area of uh, study. And I thought, you know, biomedical might actually be a really cool thing. It was actually a very interesting journey for me to go through that in my undergrad and the way undergrad works in India is that you pick a major at the beginning of um, your four years and you stick with it for four years. And I thought, okay, if, if I know that I'm going to study further and get my postgraduate degree, uh, which means these four years, I can actually try this out and see if I really like it. And that's how I ended up in biomedical engineering. So what did you think? I mean, because biomed is not a new space, but the engineering side of it and, you know, the time that you were getting into it was getting into all the wearables and all that kind of tech. What did you think you would be able to do once you finished with those qualifications? Actually, at the time, I really felt like it gave me a lot of uh, opportunities going forward because biomedical engineering is like this sweet spot between studying life sciences and medicine and then also uh, like the tech aspect of it um, because the course was essentially teaching us how to think about technology um, software or hardware in terms of its applications in in health it does qualify as a pre-medical course. So at the time, I mean, right now, looking back, I feel like, you know, I, I, I made some really good decisions. I, I, I said to myself that I will do this course in biomedical engineering. And by the end of it, I'll know if I actually want to become uh, a doctor and study medicine or just... A branch off into a completely different field in hardware or software technology. And I think like even when I was going through my curriculum, which was very interesting, I got to, to study so many of these interesting subjects that none of my peers in the engineering school were doing. Like uh, we got to do human anatomy and physiology and uh, my favorite cardiology. 
along with some of these other mainstream tech uh, topics like uh, artificial intelligence and uh, microprocessors, microcontrollers, or those type of things. It's such an amazing combination because the scope for that is huge. And even if you don't go through health tech route, like the background that you have in both gives you so many options to choose a path. And yeah, it's such a, that's a really novel way of approaching, you know, heading down this path, using it as a way to decide on your, on the fork. Yeah, actually. So once I completed my degree in biomedical engineering, I, um, I came to UCLA to initially study bioengineering. Um, that was the program that I was enrolled in. And uh, I admit that it wasn't really for me. Actually, I would rephrase it and say that I found something that was more interesting at that yeah. point in my uh, journey. I do think that some of the research that was being done was so amazing. I remember uh, one of my professors, uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Kane, he was working on nano drug delivery, which is, you know, like at the time seemed like such a, wow, it, it seemed uh, revolutionary because essentially what is it, it is, is that you have these nanoparticles, like particles of gold or yeah. other inert um, uh, materials, and you basically coat your nanoparticles with drugs and you, you're studying how this particle is now going to interact with your bloodstream and the fluids within your body. And uh, finally, how it is going to, you know, like you can uh, design it in a way that it targets uh, a certain part of your body. Like say you have a tumor and you target these nano drugs to a tumor. And uh, the research in that field was, uh, you know, still is, um, it's amazing to me and uh, really revolutionary. But at that time, something really interesting came along for me, which kind of was a turning point in my life, for lack of a better phrase, because yeah. uh, it really steered my career in a different direction, which was back then also very revolutionary. You know, these days... We have our Fitbits and our Apple Watches and it's uh, it's so mainstream and it feels like uh, it, these gadgets just blend into our everyday lives. But back then, um, this was actually being researched in a lab where, mm. you know, we would build models to detect uh, activity. These sensors were big and clunky and you know you we'd wear them and do our experiments in the lab it was really an interesting time yeah absolutely and yeah I was researching that period again just to kind of get an idea of where we were at with that level of tech and yeah but it's so fascinating to think now about all the kind of devices that we have in health tech to be able to help us monitor things and how much smaller and more portable and accessible they all are and yeah, back then, you know, when you look at the state of that kind of monitoring tech, you they've got bits hanging out of you or, you know, they're big and chunky things and you've got connectors here and there and interfaces. But even then, like, 
even though everything was still cabled and corded, it's such a fascinating idea to be able to bridge that interface between tech and physiology. Uh, and I think it's still happening. This is what I find so interesting that the human body is constantly giving out so many signals. Of course, like we are able to record our heartbeat and our temperature and, you know, oxygen levels and uh, detect activity and, you know, really detect if you're walking or you're washing your hands. But the human body is giving out way more signals than that. Yeah. Um, and there is so much we can understand and predict about the human body based on tapping these signals. And I am involved with a few folks who are uh, doing that kind of research at Northwestern University. And I think it's just amazing uh, the direction that uh, research can take. Yeah, it, it's there's so much there that you can do in so much, so many different ways and capacities in, yeah, just for technological advancement and, you know, health advancement. It's, yeah, it's a very exciting field to be in. And that's what attracted you to computer science? It, it was just my good fortune and great timing that um, I had an opportunity to work in one such lab. Actually, I worked in two different labs. Uh, one was doing uh, wearable technology and they were working with accelerometers and uh, really detecting human activity and uh, movement. The other lab I was working in was doing something a little different. They were working on a little more like data analysis and statistical analysis. And the data specifically was um, crowdsourced labeling of mm. medical images, which is, uh, which again is such an interesting space. The, the premise is you have all of these images of red blood cells and what you're trying to detect is whether or not they are infected with uh, the malaria parasite. And, and that shows up visually in these images of red blood cells. So they had this huge repo of uh, images and mm. they wanted to see if they can actually crowdsource these decisions instead of doing some sort of like manual labeling. They built a game around that. Uh, we built a game around that. It was, it was called BioGames. It's a yeah. pretty... Uh, like generic name but what what they were trying to do is gamify this whole labeling of medical images mm -hmm. which can eventually then be used to train models that yeah. can do this automatically that's very cool i, I like that because yeah it, it's definitely such an interesting way of being able to source that data to seed machine learning and you know at the same time it's like human capture <laughs> for <laughs> medical stuff it's it's cool yeah it's awesome so from that like what else did you learn about that process of crowdsourcing uh I guess medical labeling <laughs> you know there's there's so much uh, uh that can be derived from from that kind of data 
and not just from looking at these raw labels you know of course you can look at uh, image image to label mapping and there's a lot to learn from that but there's also so much to learn about human behavior based on like the series of decisions that humans make when they are in that in like a timed game environment and uh, those patterns are also very interesting to look at there's basically so much that you can learn (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah just the way that we use it interact like human interactions stuff is always going to be fascinating because you know you depending on you know your data source it's also going to be about the way they think where they come from the kind of cultural background the environment and that affects the way that they use stuff so are there any particular insights you're able to share about some interesting observations from that (laughs) (laughs) you know like there there aren't any specific conclusions that i can really talk about Uh, but i can definitely say that there's there's a lot to be learned from control tests like these and data that you get from them around how uh, humans will behave with whatever task is presented in front of them and that in itself is great research for how to build uh, you know user interfaces that you know like your end users are interested in and engaged with yeah definitely especially because you're getting so many instances now where people are building learning interfaces educational kind of um I guess, environments where you're teaching people to use software or use the software to learn other things. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, a lot of the information will be so helpful in being able to inform how we can design learning interfaces going forward. It's very, very cool. I can see that, you know, your journey is taking you all these very cool places and, you know, heading down the comp sci route and, you know, getting into software, we kind of see where that's heading. But with your background in now med and now comp science software and all of these sorts of things, kind of where did you see that heading? You know, it was uh, it was really interesting at that point in my career where I was thinking about I have all this this knowledge um, in the health sciences and I'm also starting to really get warmed up to writing more software, writing more code which by then I had really started to enjoy. And there was a few ways in which this could have gone. I feel like there was a point at that time when I was in grad school where I considered doing a PhD in medical imaging. And Natural medical image, informa- <laughs> <laughs> image informatics. That That's one thing that I had considered. But then I I decided that Maybe I wanted to actually hone my software skills, software engineering skills, and eventually be able to build a technology that can still help society, but with a different set of problems. Yes. Um, So I'm not like, yeah, even if I'm not contributing in healthcare, I'd still be writing and building technology for social good and that's how 
yeah, I ended up at Meta. That's a very cool way of getting there because, yeah, it, it's it's about social impact, right? Like you, you want to know that something that you're doing has value to somebody. And, yeah, it, it's it's gratifying to be able to see that you're making a change and a difference in other people's lives. So what are you working on at Meta in your software engineering <laughs> capacity? <laughs> yeah, um, I work on the Facebook groups product, uh, if you've used Facebook groups. And it, it, better yet, if you've been an admin of a Facebook group, you're probably yep. <laughs> using something that, that, I, uh, that I and my team build. We build tools that group admins can use to um, moderate content in their groups, keep, uh, you know, like curate content, keep the bad actors out, um, and really, you know, like maintain and foster the, the kind of communities that they're trying to build. Yeah, that is very cool. And yeah, it's such a I mean, a lot of people use Facebook in so many different ways, but yeah, absolutely. The group and community aspect, I think, is one of the best parts of social media, just because you're able to, you know, bring all these people together with similar interests and yeah, ab absolutely having to moderate all of that is a pain, my goodness, because, you know, you, it's like herding cats. <laughs> So yeah, you, it, it's great that you're building all these tools and working on these things to help people create these amazing communities online. Personally, out of all the products, I do like Facebook groups. Um, and this is by no means a brand plugin. Uh, <laughs> I think any platform that can help build communities uh, not just Facebook, there's Discord, there's Reddit, and I'm a part of so many of these platforms. And especially now, ever since uh, COVID, we've all mm. just been so isolated that this is our only window to being a part of a community that we care about. Yeah. And uh, it's, I feel like now it's become more relevant than it has ever been. Yes, completely agree. And just from the start of, you know, when everyone had to start isolating, you can see that so many more of these types of community things have popped up and there's been so much focus, like the, the social trend has been about community and connection. And that makes all of these platforms that provide an ability to create safe spaces for these communities and for people to be able to connect with each other in, you know, another way that they wouldn't be able to otherwise is, yeah absolutely so important yeah i uh, i totally agree um one great example is of a group that is uh, it, it's it's based on the neighborhood where i live oh, in cool. in california and it's called a it's called a buy nothing group yes um if you've heard of these then you know that it's just one big group where all people from your neighborhood are on it and they're usually uh, you know like the the traditional use of these groups was to exchange things you know you want to give something away or you want to uh, you're looking for something but in times of crises i've I've seen these groups, uh, you know, like filled with so much support for mm. your immediate community, even if you're not able to meet, 
and not able to interact in person you know people are just so willing to come forward and provide any kind of support if even if it's emotional or if it's logistical support yeah and uh, that's it's it's just a it's just a testament to how communities are going to be important no matter how much we advance in in technology i think the human aspect of it is going to be essential always yes like it, it's the only thing that's going to keep us going basically <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the Buy Nothing group. Like that movement is such an amazing idea because, you know, it, it stemmed with the whole anti, you know, Black Friday sales thing, trying to reduce waste, getting people to kind of pass on stuff they don't need anymore that's still usable and that just doesn't meet their needs. But yeah, definitely during COVID when, you know, the exchanges were a bit more difficult to have, you had people, you know, granting gift of time. And as you said, gift of logistics. So, you know, someone needs medicine so they can, you know, help deliver them. And it's such a great way of being able to get to know your community and share with your community and yeah, reduce you know, all this, you know, fast fashion, fast retail waste. And yeah, it's such a good way of doing it because you know that it's a group of people who are like-minded, who are prepared to give of themselves. It's very cool. Right, so moving from that, as well as all of your software interests, you're also very passionate about mentoring and career development. So why is that aspect important to you? Mentoring has been so uh, important in my own career development. And, uh, you know, like everything that I am today, I can really say with a lot of confidence that it is because I've had such good mentors, such great guides who have really been very generous with their with their feedback with their advice with their with sharing their own experiences and I, I just feel like I need to pay it forward and hopefully I've learned a thing or two from some really good managers and mentors that I've had and uh, I've also seen people around me who who struggle to get that kind of guidance and mm. I've just been lucky. So I want to, uh, I'm very passionate about paying that forward in any form. And that is such an important thing because, you know, people say, you know, you always, you always have valuable mentors and, you know, you can always get a lot of, you know, good help and guidance and from that. But for a lot of people, it's like, where, how, how do I find a mentor? What is a mentor? You know, this person who you know, I work with or who, you know, is my boss or is my manager or is my supervisor, are they my mentor? Like, and, you know, it, it's sometimes hard for people to articulate what kind of relationship that is and whether it's something they have to actively cultivate. So, you know, having felt that you've had all these mentors, are they just people you've interacted with in the past? Have they been incidental in their relationship as a mentor or have you actively sort them out and you know created these sorts of direct mentor mentee relationships with them some of them have just been kind of been there in my circles uh you know in the form of managers or uh, other supervisors who are you know naturally at that 
level in their career where they have great advice. They've had great advice from me. But some of these mentors I've had have also been my peers. From working with them, I knew that there's a lot that I could learn from them. Yeah. And at that point, it's me seeking them out as my Mm. mentors. It's worked best when someone I look up to and but if they're a peer or not in my direct line of management in the sense they're not assigned to me formally or they're not my manager they're just someone who I think are great individuals I'll make it a point to let them know that uh, it's something I admire in them and I would love to have more conversations with them about how I can gain that particular skill. Or if I'm just curious about how their their operating model is, I, I'll talk to them and I will ask them if this is something they'd be interested in uh, doing or interested in forming this relationship with me. Yeah. Um, and And people have been very honest if they don't have the bandwidth if they're uh, busy with something else in their lives or their careers, they will let me know. More often than not, I've been lucky wherein uh, these peers of mine, they've reciprocated and they've uh, you know, been very kind with uh, giving me or uh, yeah, imparting their wisdom to me. I think that's one thing that we often forget as well, that mentoring isn't always about having a negotiated kind of formalized agreement and it doesn't have to be with um in a form of a hierarchy because yes absolutely you're going to have peers and colleagues and friends even who are on a different trajectory from you who will have experiences which you value as part of your own journey and it's just you know just opening up that kind of conversation and saying you know i'd love to ask you something you know about this if you know I'd, I'd like to be able to understand how you got to this stage in your life or, you know, kind of stuff. And it doesn't have to be a long-term kind of engagement. It could just be, I just want a coffee. I want to have a chat and ask you a few things. Absolutely. I think the easiest thing to do is to just ask. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so simple and it always works. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, yeah, you don't know if you don't ask. <laughs> So with your own mentoring, I mean, because, you know, this is part of a thing that you'd like to engage with in your community for paying forward, I, you know, based on what you said, clearly like, it's going to be something that's a bit more organic, but do you also do this through any organizations? I do. I do, actually. I'm a part of uh, this organization called Nerdy Girl Success, and they're a nonprofit organization that's based in Houston, Texas. And they are an organization that helps connect uh, young girls who are in high school, middle school and high school with role models and mentors in the industry and also uh, provides them with resources for career opportunities and what they can do going forward. So, yeah, I, I noticed that you are one of the people on the advisory board for Nerdy Girl Success, which is very cool. So for people who are looking to be mentors and looking to get into that kind of space, how well, how do you engage a relationship with 
an organization to become a mentor, to become part of the advisor? Like, what was that journey like for you? You know, to be very honest, uh, uh, this might sound like, uh, uh, you know, it's like a very repetitive answer, but really the key is to just ask. And I can't tell you how effective it is, Um, especially when you're genuine and you're passionate about something, um, those uh, opportunities will just come your way. In my case, I uh, contacted the the founder of Nerdy Girl Success because I had come across their work and their mission and I was so impressed, so excited that I just had to reach out and it wasn't really to you know like I I didn't really say that make me uh, you know a a member of your advisory board I I just said that I want to be involved in whatever capacity because your mission is so exciting and uh, it is definitely something I wish I had had growing up Mm access to those kind of resources and the confidence that uh, it gives and uh, that's that's literally how i ended up with nerdy girls it's it's just one of those things where again like as you said you don't know if you don't ask but it's also you know if you find a group that you're really passionate about whose mission is something that really resonates with you you don't lose anything by approaching them and just opening up a conversation and saying, I'd love to know more. I'd like to hear more of what you do. And without having to worry about a commitment or an obligation in any way. And I think that's one of the things a lot of people, you know, across my travels who I've spoken to have kind of indicated because what can I contribute? What can I share? You know, what what is the value of my own experiences in this capacity? Would I be of use? And you don't know unless you ask. You can talk to people and find out whether there is a fit for you, whether your experience are something that you can lend either in one capacity or another, or even if that group isn't suitable for what you're trying to, you know, able to share, they could refer you to someone else where it's like, yeah, this might actually be a better fit for you. But yeah, at the same time, you don't know until you open those discussions (laughs) yeah yeah and I think it comes from the place of wanting to offer your skills and your uh, experience and uh, your expertise to the community It, it just comes from the place of saying that well I I'm someone who's in the tech industry and I'm someone that has been uh, seeing a lot of young women grow in their careers. How can I offer that knowledge to other organizations um, that are aiming to do the same thing? Yeah, it, it's trying to say, this is this is my experience and it doesn't matter if my experience is not someone else's experience. It's still my experience and that still has value to somebody. We, I know that there are a few other things that you would love to talk about, but I think they'll fit into some of these other questions that I was wanting to ask you. So we might get on with that. So what hobby interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? Thank you so much for asking that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because um, it's, it's a hobby I picked up recently and I've been most excited about. 
I recently started running and I, I recently finished a half marathon in oh, gosh. San Francisco. It That's awesome. The, it was, it was a very interesting experience. And I think I learned so many things about myself, about just like picking up a new skill or task and seeing it to completion. There were so many life lessons that I learned from uh, from training for the half marathon. Uh, That's very cool. And I, by no means do I, 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 I don't know if I can call myself a runner yet. I have been running for... I think the uh, fact you've done a half marathon suggests you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... Uh, okay, I will take that. I will take that. <laughs> if Michelle, you say so. Um <laughs> But really, you know, I used to have a, a love-hate relationship with running. And uh, as I've heard from a lot of my friends also, because uh, it's very hard to get started. Mm. And the beginning is is quite difficult. When I started training for the half marathon, I would go out running on my weekly short runs and I would feel like, oh my God, this is killing me. Why did I even sign up for this? What was I thinking? <laughs> um, but with consistency, it just gets infinitely better. And then I started enjoying it. And I started looking forward to my runs and to my training. And eventually, the 13 miles that I ran, the only way I can describe it is that I had a great time. I enjoyed it. That's cool. And it's one of those activities where people say you just enter flow state and everything just kind of falls into place. But, you know, getting to the point where you can actually get into flow state for running is sometimes quite the challenge. (laughs) It's, It's true. And I think there is a threshold that you have to cross. And I noticed that it's a reflection of so many other things that we do in life. Mm. where it's you know like once you cross a certain threshold you really start to appreciate what it is uh, and what it brings into your life but until you reach that point you have to keep persevering yeah absolutely so after having a love-hate relationship with running why were you motivated to do a half marathon like that? That's quite the jump. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, I, I really have to thank my uh, personal trainer for this. I work with a very wonderful individual um, who has been on this journey with me in helping me build physical strength. And I used to tell her sometimes when I go running that, uh, you know, yeah, I went running. It was difficult, but I did it. And she said that, you know, set a goal for yourself. Do a half marathon. Give yourself about 15, 16 weeks of training and then do it. And uh, I, I, I thought about it. I was like, okay, it sounds scary. It does sound like a big thing to do. But I might feel good if I actually did it. Yeah. So then I just signed up for one and uh, and You're I told her now. that 
I committed. And she was like, wow, you did it. Okay, I'm so excited. We can now start training. And that's how we started. Uh, like, I, I started training and then I had a lot of support from my trainer. And she really helped me go through the highs and lows of training. Yeah. And that's that's a great way of doing it as well, because, yeah, if you don't have an objective, then there's no reason why you should keep going. And it's just so easy to stop because eh, what's the point? But yeah, committing, committing to the marathon and, you know, 16 weeks is not, it's actually not that long. Like it, if you're setting a goal to figure out whether something will work for you, that's not too long a time to actually get a result to figure out whether it's something that you want to continue with. So that's very reasonable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't too bad. But uh, now that it's over, I actually miss doing my long runs. And nothing's really stopping me, yeah. uh, but <laughs> but I'm also like trying to pace it so that I'm I, I feel good when I sign up for the next one. Excellent. So you're going to try a full marathon or keep going with halves for a little while? I think 13 miles is a good enough distance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm mentally there yet to run yeah. 26 miles but I do feel like I'm mentally there to run 13 miles again that is very <laughs> cool like that it's also such a good revelation for yourself to do it and go actually I could do it again <laughs> yeah yeah that is that is that was surprising to me also because I didn't know how I would feel at the end of it I didn't know if I'm going to be exhausted or I, I'm, I don't know if I'd hate it, but I did it. And I was like, okay, that was enjoyable. Maybe I'll do it again. That is very cool. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? So this isn't a book that I read in my childhood. I mm -hmm. was a young adult when I read it. Um, it's called A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khalid Hosseini. It's just the story, it's set in Afghanistan and it's a story of two women who are different in social status, um, but they are somehow tied together by their struggles, which come from being a woman in that society. And it was so deeply moving because these women really have to go through a lot just to be able to get their basic needs and rights um, of being acknowledged as humans or uh, existing. And it was so moving because I could, I could see myself in that position and I could see... Mm any other woman that I know in that position. And that made it all the more heart-wrenching. And it's always uh, stayed with me. I don't know if you've read the book. I haven't. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it sounds very, very powerful because it's so relatable. And, you know, it general political state of everything right now. But it, it does make you think about how possible these things that have happened before can happen again and you know yeah it makes you reflect a lot on the state of things and what needs to change and you know where you fit in all of it 
yeah it just uh, it really reminded me and of course i'm from india it's a place where women's safety is still a big concern but reading that book sitting here in california reminded me that again that there are spaces where women aren't treated as equals there is that gender disparity yeah in some places it's more extreme and in some places it's there it's more subtle it's there in my industry and it's it's subtle but it's still there and there's it just reminded me that there's so much work that needs to be done uh, in bringing women at par uh, in society people think that all of these sorts of things aren't as pervasive as they used to be but it's all about what we have visibility to yeah i was recently informed about this article on rest of world an online publication and this journalist was researching into the headline is the enduring sexism of india's tech industry you can see all of that stuff kind of happening everywhere and it's just extremely condensed in that space especially because of the high percentage of women in tech in india and they're just having to face it all the time and yeah it's stuff that really really needs to be brought to light a little bit more <laughs> i this is again one thing i'm really uh, uh, you know passionate about and i'm hoping that at some point in my career i'm able to use my voice to address issues like these because i find myself oftentimes in spaces where women are still a minority um i'm not in india i'm i'm in california i'm in the silicon valley but women are still a minority it's still a male dominated field and that needs to change it needs to change some of it is systemic some of it is uh, uh, through you know avenues like mentorship where women need to understand their the possibilities for them and the, that there is a place for all the skills that they bring to the table yeah making sure that they've got they know that they have a place for their skill set that they have a voice to share and that they can you know lend their experiences and all capacities to all of these industries and all these fields yeah lots of systemic problems to start working on let's get it done <laughs> yeah Yeah so this seems to be a really good way to lead into a, the last question which is what advice would you give to someone who'd like to get into what you do and what advice should they ignore one piece of advice that i'd like to give is be bold always speak your mind do your research and then don't doubt yourself know when you know something and also know when you don't know something and uh, you know like find a way to uh, express both of these diff- both these scenarios but always be bold i think it's so important confidence is such a big factor when it comes to navigating your career not just in the tech industry in any industry mm. 
you of course need to be good at what you do you need to be competent you need to know your know your stuff but you also need to have that confidence on yourself that you're doing the right thing that's one thing that my mentors have taught me that's one thing that i've learned over and over from so many small and big situations in my life but it is the one thing that will play in your favor yes absolutely and it's yeah it's easy enough to say have confidence in what you do and who you are there's nothing to do it but telling yourself that's always a good start <laughs> yeah it's, and it's yeah just trying to get like and always question yourself like not in terms of your ability but is this where you want to be is this who you are? Is this authentic to your objectives and your goals and what you desire in your life? And yeah, one thing that comes up as well is, you know, check in with yourself from time to time to make sure that you're still on track for where you want to be. Yeah. All of these very good bits of advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not, uh, you know, like I, I, I want to be honest and candid about one thing that I used to do <laughs> at one point in my career. Yeah, like now looking back, it was such a powerful realization. So as I mentioned, I, I was, I've always been in teams where, you know, women are the minority. Earlier in my career, I had that, as we all do in some magnitude, I had to build that confidence and I'd have phases where I was low on confidence. Mm. And in those phases, I would usually like look at a, like a more confident team member or someone who I perceived as uh, confident. And I would look at them and I'd think to myself, what would they do in the same situation? And realize that I also had it. Oops, sorry. I also had it in me. Yeah. So learning to identify your own strengths, like you said, checking in with yourself to see how you are tracking and what you are learning is all very important. And yeah, that that's such a powerful thing to realize as well. That yes, absolutely. Like seeing values and qualities in other people and thinking actually yes i i might have that too that that's that's okay <laughs> exactly yeah yeah it, it's yeah it, it's one of those things where like you don't unless you actually take some time to reflect you kind of lose, lose sight of what it is that you do have in yourself that's just as valuable as what someone else does <laughs> yeah and sometimes you have to be a little more intentional about it like you have yeah. to really ask yourself the hard questions you have to maybe depending on how it is that you communicate with yourself you have to maybe do a writing exercise or actually like go through replay events in your career and see what you've learned from them and every now and then regroup and gather all these valuable lessons that you've learned so that they don't just get lost and the strength that you get from your journey isn't just something that's it's not an afterthought it's something that you are intentionally bringing with you every day wherever you go 
It's very, very important. And as you say, with the writing exercise, one thing that I am always surprised about is when I have to update my resume and have to go through and, you know, review what I've done in my career. It's like, oh, I did do that, didn't I? <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it's those little things because you, you're so buried in it that you forget what you've done and what you can accomplish and what you have accomplished. And it gives you so much perspective in your past to lead to your future. Yeah, so yeah definitely. It, it, yeah. It's just one of those things. You gotta, you gotta reflect, you gotta take stock and be intentional about it <laughs> and any advice that they should ignore. I don't know if anyone's ever going to tell you that you can't do anything, but if someone tells you that it's not your cup of tea, it's not something that you should be aiming to do, do it anyway. There are a lot of naysayers out there. I've seen it personally for no good reason, really. But yeah, your eyes should always be on the goal. Excellent. <laughs> Very good advice. Yeah. And especially because like your journey has been like indirect as well. And like the fact that you kept those options open for yourself, you didn't go, well, I'm doing biomed. I'm going to have to do biomed, like, like, sorry, biomed, I have to stick with biotech or, you know, medicine. And, you know, I can't deviate from that. And yeah, just keeping those doors open and seeing where that took you. Cause yeah, otherwise you wouldn't have discovered that computer science was the thing for you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, yeah. that is a great example. That is one thing that I'm drawing from. Exactly. So good. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Kritika, for speaking with me today. I have loved hearing your software engineering journey and, you know, being computer science myself. Really love that. It's nice feeling that I can speak to a kindred spirit on this sort of thing. So if people would like to learn more about the work that you do and what you're into, where can they go? First of all, thanks, Michelle, for having <laughs> me. I enjoyed our conversation so much. You can find me on LinkedIn. I uh, write on Medium and I actually post it to a bunch of different places. I have my, um, I also post my work on this website called Women's Web in India because um, a lot of what I write is about leadership and women in leadership positions and how they can get to uh, these places. So yeah, feel free to follow me anywhere. Um, I'd be happy to chat and I'd be happy to, yeah, share my work. Amazing. Yeah. And I love that you're writing about these experiences as well, because it, it's such a great way to be able to get your experiences and your advice out into the world. So wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so thank you again, Hrithika. This has been absolutely wonderful and I hope you have an amazing rest of your evening. Thanks, Michelle. You too. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave us a rating and share this with your geek or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and the Steam Powered Show, the link for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.